This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by lynda.com, who with over 2,000 high-quality and engaging videos, provides a wide breadth of courses from beginner to advanced. lynda.com is there to help you learn creative, software, and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. To take advantage of their free seven-day trial, visit lynda.com forward slash The Candid Frame. That's L-Y-N-D-A forward slash the Candid Frame. You can now download the latest episode of The Candid Frame directly to your smartphone or tablet using the Candid Frame app. Available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8, you can automatically receive and listen to the latest episode minutes after it's released. Mark and download your favorites, or send your comments and suggestions directly to me via the app. Download it today using your favorite app store, or click on the links in the show notes found at the Candid Frame website. This is Ibarian X, and welcome to the Candid Frame. The war in Iran and Afghanistan can seem like an afterthought to many of us. Even though these two wars were the most costly and lengthy conflicts in this country's history, its disappearance from the headlines and the nightly news can make it seem like it's all over. But that's far from being the case for those men and women who continue to serve and especially for those who are trying to rebuild a life after the military. Robert L. Cunningham's book, Afghanistan on the Bounce, is a book that explores the daily lives of the soldier beyond the drama of the firefight but instead documents the world where they strive to create some semblance of normalcy under the most abnormal of circumstances. Regardless of where your politics fall, I hope that this conversation and the images that Robert has created provide you an appreciation to what it means to be and have been a soldier and what it takes for a photographer to provide an honest portrayal of these stories. Enjoy our conversation with Robert L. Cunningham. Well, Robert, welcome to the, the Candid Frame. I was really pleased to receive a, a copy of your book, uh, Afghanistan on the Bounce. Uh, it's a really revelatory uh, book about, um, you know, deployments in Afghanistan. There's so much, despite the fact that this has been on the news for the last 10 years, it's it's, it's amazing how much we don't know. And uh, this, this book really serves to really communicate what, the complete experience of a soldier is or has been in, in Afghanistan. And I think it's something to be really, really proud of. Real quickly, explain to us what on the bounce means, because I'm, I'm not everyone who's listening to this show will understand what that refers to. Well, there's there's kind of a double entendre with it. On the bounce, in one hand, means the different bases that I bounced around from one location to another wall in Afghanistan, being able to hit uh, over 20 different locations. And the other reference is a reference to Robert Heinlein's book, Starship Troopers, in which it talks about soldiers doing things on the bounce, meaning in a uh, fast manner and in between missions, there was a lot of stuff that they had to do while bouncing from one place to another. In reading the what you wrote in the book, I came to understand that you came from a, a family with a history of military service, but because of um, a health issue, you weren't able to, to serve. Tell us about that, that, that family history, because it seems like it's really a big part of, of what defines who you are as, as a person and really propelled you to, to create this book and create these images. You know, my whole family has always had some sort of tie to the military, from my grandfathers who served in the military to the service of my, my father as a, as a contractor and and such. So when the time came for me to take the Armed Service Vocational Aptitude Battery or ASVAB test uh, to join the military, I was excited to get to do that. And then when I got through the process and went down to the processing station, they discovered uh, the medical condition called fibromyalgia. And they said it was uh, beyond the waverable limits, even though I had uh, I attempted two additional times to to get past that, to get a waiver or otherwise. And in the end, they just said it was beyond the waverable limits and not conducive to the military lifestyle. And so I uh, went back to school 
you know, went to college, got a, a bachelor's degree in art and design and started working in other related fields in which I had uh, interaction with soldiers on a regular basis. And I kind of grew sad and kind of kind of to a point of bitterness about not getting to serve when, when so many of my friends and people I knew were getting to go over there. And uh, one day the conversation came up with a friend of mine uh, about uh, my photography. And he said, you know, you're very good with your photography. Have you ever thought about being an embed? And, you know, I laughed and I said, no, not, not really. I've never really thought about that. And he said, well, maybe you should look into it. And lo and behold, uh, a little over six, maybe eight months later, I was stepping off a plane in, in Afghanistan to, to perform my first uh, embedment with the 1st Infantry Division of the U.S. Army. Take me back to that moment, though, when you, when you found out that you wouldn't be able to serve, considering... As you said, you, you had uh, so many family members who had served, and you had friends that were serving. That must have felt particularly sort of devastating on a variety of different ways that, that you couldn't not only sort of follow in the legacy of your family, but that you weren't you know, able to be with, with your friends and serving, and more, more importantly, serving your, your country. Can you, what did that sort of feel like when you realized that it's just not going to happen? You know, at first, it, it's it's just like the it was very similar in my life to to losses of of friends or loved ones. Uh, you know, at first, you go through the the denial phase of it. You know, no, this this isn't happening. You know, maybe they're wrong. I'll I'll petition and do this. Then you go into the bartering phase where you're like, hey, you know, okay, well, you know, I have this degree and I have this experience. Why can't this help me? And then you know, there there gets to be that bitterness phase where you're just you're just upset at. at at all of it, because, you know, to me, ser service in, in the armed forces was, you know, it was just a given from when I was in kindergarten. You know, I talked with my kindergarten teacher a while back and she said, you know, even in kindergarten, I would show up dressed as a soldier and, and say that I was mm -hmm. going to be a pilot or an astronaut. You know, so even from childhood, this was my life's aspiration was to serve the military. And so it, that loss was very, very hard for me to cope with after a while. And then you get to the acceptance phase and you start saying, okay, well, what can I do now? And, you know, my wife, she's the uh, daughter of two Air Force personnel. Uh, so I went and talked with them for a little while and got some guidance on it. And, you know, after a while, I realized the fact that there was many other ways to serve my country, not just with you know, a firearm or in, in the military. I mean, there was, there was certainly other ways to serve my country. And I learned that I could probably do just as good of a job with my camera, if not a better job. And that panned out pretty interestingly, you know, to a night I was in Afghanistan with a, with a young soldier named Raymond Drevnak. And we were sitting in a guard shack together as there was a storm in there. And we spent some of the evening, you know, talking. And as the storm died down, I, I, I took my leave of him, and as I was leaving the guard shack, he uh, he said, "Hey, thank you." And I turned to him, and I'm like, "For what?" I mean, you know, in my mind, I'm like, "You're the guy in the uniform over here, living a year of your life, you know, in the middle of storms, pulling guard duty, you know." And so I turned to him, I said, "You know, why? What? What the heck? You know?" And he he looked at me and he said, "You make us feel important." And it was at that moment I realized that you know what I was doing. It, it had a service to our men and, and women. And had I gotten in, I would have been sitting in Raymond's shoes uh, in that guard shack. And, you know, it really changed my perspective a lot to have that happen. And, you know, I turned to him and as I told him, I said, you are important regardless of if people make you feel important, you know. And But that conversation became a guiding light in my future endeavors there as an embed and, and very influenced the book very much uh, as well. And I'm very glad to say that he's one of the pictures in the book as well. Yeah, it seems like it was a, a big epiphany for you to have that, that moment. Absolutely. I mean, it really, it gave me a lot of clear knowledge as to the importance of what I was doing. I mean, getting to go over there and do that, I, I knew that was interpersonally important. It was, it was important to me personally to go to Afghanistan and such, but to see what the options were to be able to help our guys and, and actually help what the mission in Afghanistan is for with the use of my camera. It, it, it made the situation far bigger than just little old lonesome Robert. Yeah. Did you struggle initially when you were, you were out there, even though you knew why you were, you, you were doing it, why it was important to, to do, did you have to deal with sort of internal voices, you know, saying that I haven't earned this or, they're just feeling like, God, these guys are really out here. They're putting their lives on the line. And here I am 
taking pictures and and feeling confident in terms of what you were doing and and your own justification for doing it. I'm sorry that I'm not more eloquent in terms of asking the question, but hopefully you understand what I'm trying to get at. I do. And, you know, I'll tell you this, the, uh, <laughs> the feeling I had the second I stepped foot off of that aircraft, uh, in Bagram, I looked around for the first time and I saw the, uh, you know, the, the environment of Afghanistan, there was an overwhelming feeling of, wow, you know, what am I doing here? You know, <laughs> and I, I had my, my reasons for being there personally, but, you know, I'll tell you every single day that I spent with these, men and women at arms and these, these men and women serving their, our country and, and being there in Afghanistan every single minute, every single second of my day, um, I felt so privileged to be allowed to be with these guys and to see their world and see their environment. I mean, even the, even the bad times and the times that we had rough times there, I, I was very thankful for every minute of, of it because, you know, what these guys do every day, uh, to them, it's, it's, it's a job. You know, and it's a rough job, but this is what they do every day. And so being an outsider, being someone who was, you know, had not gone through boot camp, who had not served in the uniform, to be able to kind of be a voyeur, to, you know, kind of stand in the background and peek into their lives as an outsider, it was a privilege beyond words. Now, it was, a, it was certainly a fight. There were certainly some units that, uh, that did not welcome my presence there. There were certain days and missions that that were were a fight to remain there but i will tell you that there in my personal life i've never experienced anything that was more of a privilege than to walk with our our fighting men and women in country to walk into combat you know when you step outside that wire and you realize that these 23 men and women are counting on you to not get them killed right? just as much as you're counting on them to not get you killed and to take care of you if something happens. You know, the, when you've trusted your life to these other people and they've trusted their life to yours, there's no greater privilege than, that I've ever experienced in my life than that. So how do you go about sort of convincing them? Because they, they have trained, they've been out on patrols before, you know, they know how with each role, each soldier is supposed to perform in a given situation. And then you bring on this unknown factor, this guy with cameras around his neck, which like you just said, could end up getting killed because he may not know, have any clue in terms of, you know, what's happening or what he should or shouldn't do. So you know, there's there's no there's no redo on something like this. So how do you go about sort of convincing these guys that I'm not going to get in your way, and more importantly, I'm not going to get you killed? You know, uh, as you ask this question, I've just got the biggest grin uh, from ear to ear about this because you know it was it was a daily fight. I mean, depending on which unit. Once I got with the unit and we got them convinced, then we went outside. And as long as I performed admirably or, or well under, you know, under situations, you know, that unit was fine. But then, of course, the next, you know, two days later, I was finding myself with a new unit somewhere else in the country. But, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I always look back on, a, on the first. The first time I was uh, attached with the 870th uh, Military Police Company out of uh, Coast, out of a little base called OCCP Coast. And there was a gentleman who was working with them if I might be so bold as to say, he looked like Belle's father from the Disney movie uh, Beauty and the Beast. And he had a big, uh, big bushy you know, mustache, and, and he looked at me like I was straight out of the pits of hell, that I was the most evil thing to ever walk into his, into his world. You know, he, was, he was like, what is this guy doing? And when the commander gave me a moment of time to express myself to them and tell them a little bit about my background, about my family, and about my, you know, the reasons why I was there, you know, to watch this man's face go from utter hatred to, okay, I'll, I'll tolerate this guy, all the way to, all right, welcome to the party, you know, and uh, it, was, it was that moment where if I could get this man who is, you know, an older gentleman, well over 40, I would assume, you know, who, you know, did not want me there to, uh, to come around to it. It was, it was a wonderful moment. I still have a picture of him, uh, from, from our missions that I keep around kind of as a, you know, a motivator. If I can convince this guy, I can convince anybody, you know, so it was a, it was a daily task. We had, you know, each, each new unit, I had to kind of feel the room and feel who the guys were. But the general rule is, is you never learn, you never get their trust. You never, ever get their trust until you're done with the mission. You have to prove it 
once you've once you've walked outside the wire, once you've done it, once you've gone with them, and once you come home and everybody's safe and everybody's fine, then they'll trust you a little bit more for tomorrow's mission, and then a little bit more for the next mission. So the only way you win these these people's trust is by performance. It's not just words. It's not at all words. You have to be able to perform the task. And I'm very honored to say that uh, in in most of the men that I've I, I I was with over there, and most of the women I was with over there have very fond statements for my performance uh, around them. Yeah. It, it's such a, it's such a tightrope that you have to walk because to one extent, you know, you have to be sensitive to their needs and, 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 you know, they're there to do a job and then you're there to do your job, which is making photographs. So it, was it a struggle to decide when do I make a photograph or where do I don't, or when, you know, Oh, this, if I move over to this location, it would be a great shot, but it might expose you or it might expose them. So, you know, you're having to make considerations. You, don't, you certainly don't have to make while you're here in the States making photographs. So how, how did your thinking process work with respect to that? Well, I'll tell you, you know, honestly, the uh, you, you really learn how to use your camera and how to take a good picture fast and get it right the first time when the person you're shooting at is shooting back at you and you're using a camera and they're using a gun. Uh, you know, you learn, you learn pretty quick how to do that, you know, but there was many times, you know, my, my default answer was to, if I even had a little twitch of taking a picture of it, I should take a picture of it, you know, because, you know, you don't get to go do it again. This isn't a model shoot where you can call the model up and say, Hey, you know, I didn't get what I needed to do done. Let's, let's reshoot it. You know, this isn't a, a, a time where you can set up your cameras or, or otherwise, you know, so. I did shoot a lot. I mean, all said and done, uh, some of the news reports are, are saying 55, but the, the number's closer to 65,000 pictures that I took over my four months there in Afghanistan. But, you know, the reality is there was, there was a couple days when I had to worry about how do I do a shoot? I mean, here's a, here's a little thing that a lot of photographers don't ever have to worry about, but on the front of many of our cameras, there's an infrared light or a white light that, uh, mm. that helps focus the camera system. Well, in combat, you can't have that. You know, because you never know when that's going to go off and suddenly you're going to be shining a bright light. So one of the considerations I had to make when picking my equipment was even to the point of having a white light sensor on it is, can't, is a no-go. But even the infrared is a no-go because half these guys are using night vision, you know, and such. So you really have to kind of consider every single aspect of what you're doing in the, in the light of what will cost me my life and what will cost those around me's life. Explain to the people that you went uh, as an embed what did, what did that that mean? And were you completely shooting freelance, or did you have um, relationships with publications before you left, or did you have to sort of solicit that after the fact? How did that work? You know, the the first thing was is in order to get into the country as an embedded photographer, you have to go through a clearing process that clears you through the International Security Assistance Force or ISAF that is in charge of of handling embeds. You know, you if you're a you know, you're a photographer, you can get your own flight to uh, Afghanistan and run around Afghanistan yourself. But in order to actually work with the United States military or, or its allied militaries, you know, you need to be uh, an embedded photographer with them. So there's a, there's a clearing process that you have to go through where you have to uh, fill out some applications and, and you have to be sponsored by a news agency. So a news agency has to sponsor you. And I... I ran into this issue myself because I did not want anyone to be able to tell me what my pictures were or what I was allowed to show or what I was not allowed to show. And, you know, with with any sort of media outlet that's out there, they have their own biases, they have their own viewpoints, they have their own what they will show and what they won't show. And so the concern is with being sponsored by most news agencies, you have to sign a, a waiver when you sell the image that they can caption it however they feel. And so there's times in which you'll see a picture out there that's captioned one way that the reality of the situation is differently. And I was very sensitive to this. So what I decided to do was, uh, was to set up my new, own news company. So I set up my, news, my own news company with the help of, of a lot of my friends. We set up a, you know, a company and established a, uh, a reputation with that news company so that I could be sponsored by that news company to go into the country and to be able to document it in a manner – in which we controlled the rights of what was there. So if, you know, if a soldier, say, is, is holding a kid's toy, 
you know, some people would say, oh, well, that's, you know, a soldier stealing a toy from a kid or some would say that's a soldier giving a toy to a kid when the reality may be nothing more than that's the soldier playing with the, to- the kid's toy because it's cool. You know, so we wanted to make sure that we, we had what I would consider journalistic integrity, that we had the ability to say what we wanted to say, right, wrong, or, or not, you know, because there was, there was many days in which we could be very critical of the military as well. It wasn't just that we were all a pro-military, pro-this, pro-that. No, we wanted to be able to show the truth without the bias, and the only way you can do that is if you sponsor yourself. Did you feel that, that some of the troops had a mistrust for the media, that you had to sort of, you know, this not just the whole issue of, you know, you being part of their team as they're going out on patrol, but just in terms of a wariness towards the press. Did you find that uh, just as a result of you having a camera and, and having press credentials that there was some hostility or resistance to you? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this. You, you, you asked the question, do some of the, the troops have that? And I would tell you that in my 132 combat missions that I got to go out with them, the 40 different units, the just all said and done, thousands of, of, of soldiers that, that I had the opportunity to point my camera at or otherwise, I would say I met two of them that, that trusted the media. I would say 99.9% of them had great reservations interacting with me or otherwise. There were many times I would, I would try to talk with a soldier or such that I would get a, a bit of a pushback. Now, that's if I was, if I was you know, asking to do an interview or something. I mean, during our downtime, we had a little bit of time. And once they got to know who we are and see what we had and what the, the mission and the objective was, they would become a lot easier. But the initial response is always mistrust because so many of these people have been, have been hurt. I uh, photographed one individual who was there and I asked him, you know, I said, may I take your picture? There was a group of them. Just after a, after a firefight, this uh, infantry commander came in. He was a, a, a platoon sergeant. So the platoon sergeant came in and wanted to thank some pilots because they had been overhead and had protected them over a firefight. And so when I asked to take the picture, the platoon sergeant said, you need to block out my name. You need to block out anything that identifies me because a little while ago, a news company didn't. And my parents have gotten phone calls and my family has, has been harassed and, and all this. So if you, if you're going to take this picture, you better, you better block out my information. And so it's their mistrust of the media is an earned mistrust. It's a mistrust that is given by people who say one thing. I, I can't give you the exact details, but there was a uh, there was a nickname that one of the guys gave me that was a rather rather crass and dirty nickname. And his sentiments were that you're a friend when you're here with us, and when you go home, you stab us in the back. Mm-hmm. And you know there was that feeling that these guys had. But I would I would say that the knee jerk reaction is mistrust. But I think that that comes from a large earned culture. What I appreciate about your book, and I think what is afforded to you by the book, is that you get to reveal so much more than that can be expressed in a newspaper or in a magazine article. I think most people's when they think about soldiers in, in Afghanistan, they think of them on patrol, they think of them in a firefight, and so much of their time is not spent doing that. It's weirdly ordinary in some ways, and I think that that really that really su- may surprise people when they take a look at this book. That you're documenting downtime, but you're 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 docking, uh, documenting a sort of a surreal downtime where everyone is sort of constantly on alert. That there's a sort of underlying tension that's sort of pervasive, even when they're just chilling out. You know, I had I had a recent uh, review of the book that was, that was posted online. And I kind of, I kind of laughed when I read it because one of the individuals who was reviewing it made it, made it clear. He made a comment that he kind of wished that we had shown a bit less of the combat than we showed because 80%, according to him, 80% of the military folks in Afghanistan live on the bigger bases. And contrary to what most people think, the vast majority uh, of people live on four or five bases around the entire country with college classrooms and fast foods and fobs and all this. And I laughed when I read this. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry that I showed too much of the the war and not mm. enough of uh, the the downtime that other people have, have served. And I was blessed. I mean, each unit has their own purpose and their own reason for being there. And I mean, 
when I went back the second time with the uh, Air Force Central Command, you know, our, our mission was a very different mission than the U.S. Army's infantry. And so it's it's interesting. The key thing that I wanted to hit on with the book was the idea that every person's experience in Afghanistan is slightly different. And, you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter whether you're a pilot or, or whether you're, you know, a clerk or whether you're a, an infantryman there in Afghanistan. There are some things that are common, such as, you know, some of your living situations or or at the bigger bases or otherwise, but that each person's experience was different. And so the, the key thing and idea with this that I really wanted to hit home was that if you knew somebody that had served or if you've been over there and you want to understand what their life was like, this is a good starting point. Because if you have a good base understanding of what life is like over there, then they can tell you, no, in my case, this was this way. And, and you know, and they can steer you more in the understanding. But as long as you have a base understanding of what life was like there, that's, that's a different world. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, lynda.com. We can spend so much time learning about our cameras and software technique, but it's what we choose to photograph that helps us to grow as photographers. That's why I enjoy the courses at lynda.com, which focus on different topics of photography, from portraiture, travel, landscape, and so much more. These courses not only provide valuable information as to how to do these well, but provide the inspiration we're looking for to pick up the camera and go out and make our own photographs. You can watch these and over 2,000 quality videos for free for a limited time. I've worked out a special deal with lynda.com to provide you with unlimited access to the entire library for seven days. Visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to use it for a week. That's lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to start your seven day free trial and help support the show. You include like uh, pictures and illustrations of the equipment and the gear that they use. And I was thinking that from one perspective, some people would look at that and going, well, he's glorifying, glorifying war and glorifying the equipment. And then I could, and then I took a, a perspective of the guys who had been there who would go, yeah, that's exactly what I had to wear. That's exactly what I had to use. Not just the just the weapons, but just the overall kit. And I thought it was really interesting to see that include that included in that way because I think that uh, it's a it's a way of thinking of a photo book with a little uh, in, in a way that's a little out of the box by including that because you get such a detailed perspective in terms of what what's involved in being there. Can you can you tell us about? Um, you know, the photographs and the illustrations that are included in the book. Why did you think it was important to to include them along with the photographs? What, what drove me on this was, first off, I didn't want just a coffee table book of single image with a little paragraph that says what's the image. I mean, I, I would like to do that someday later on Afghanistan because I have so much more images that some of my some of my best work I held back because I'd like to do a coffee table book. But my biggest thing is, is, Unless you know what you're looking at, it's hard to understand a picture. And so, you know, they talk about how a picture paints a thousand words, but without the right understanding of what you're looking at, it might paint the wrong thousand words. And so what I wanted to do was get an understanding of what these what's what you're seeing in the image. So when you see a, a helicopter flying overhead, you know, the, the vast majority of the civilian world would look at one military helicopter very similar to the next. Whereas if we could break it down and say, okay, this helicopter's mission is slightly different. This one's mission is cargo, whereas this one's mission is attack. You know, so you can get an understanding of what those are. Then when you see a picture of that helicopter flying around, it's not, oh, that's a picture of a, a Chinook. So now we, we know that this is probably moving personnel or troops. You know, and as far as it goes with you know, glorifying or, or that situation, the idea of potentially glorifying combat. I'll, I'll say this in the, in regards to photographers, I don't know if, if I'm the only one, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm probably not the only photographer that has grown attached to their camera. And then after your camera has done, you know, a lot of images or, or done things with you, gone places or traveled with you, there comes a time in which you become kind of attached to that camera. And the same is true with these guys. And, their their equipment many of them have named their their rifle and you know the difference is this and here's the key thing as much as when i sold when i sold one of my old nikons that i had shot with for a long time and i was like wow you know that nikon went to so many places with me and i kind of missed it 
you know, the difference is I didn't trust my life to that Nikon. And these, these men and women in combat, they trust their, their life to their armor. If that armor, you know, fails them, they die, you know? And so there's not a matter of glorifying combat or glorifying war because the funny thing is, is, you know, a lot of those guys, uh, you know, we would, we would, we'd love it if, if that didn't have to exist. We'd love it if combat didn't have to exist. But the difference is, is these people understand the necessity of it and they understand why they're there. And so when it comes to their equipment and their gear, their, their livelihood and their, their, not only their livelihood as far as a job, but their actual life depends on their equipment. And so if a large part of these men's lives is based on their equipment, then understanding them comes from understanding their equipment. Just as much as if I want to understand a race car driver's life, I need to understand his car. I need to understand what he's put into it and why that's significant. It's, you know, if I want to understand baseball, I, want, I need to understand the bat, the, the glove, and the, and the mitt, you know, and the, and, the, and the ball. So it's just an understanding of, of their equipment on it, but I think it is crucial that people understand the equipment in order to understand the person. Yeah. I think one of the heart, most heartbreaking things I read was what was a soldier who said that basically his worst fear wasn't about dying. It was not being remembered or being forgotten. And that just was heartbreaking to, to you know, to, to hear that. Tell me about, you know, hearing someone say that, especially considering your role as a photographer is to sort of to document and, you know, to have a record of not only the things they're doing, but the people who, who the people that they are. You know, there was a, there was a statement that I wrote in the book that was a sentence that really stuck with me. And that was the sentence that says, with one shot of my camera, I could preserve forever what one shot of a bullet might take away. And, you know, what I, what I realized, you know, when I was in Afghanistan and I watched soldiers wait for, you know, an hour to get access to a computer and then log into their computer and see that nobody had sent them a message. Nobody had said hi to him on Facebook. Nobody had emailed him. You know, nobody had reached out to him. And then they, you know, look at that, realize that, log out and walk away, you know, upset or, or you know, depressed about it. And you, you realize that these men waited an hour to see if somebody had just said hi to him and to find out that nobody said hi to him. And then they have to figure out where they go from there. You know, so the issue is these men are far from their homes. These men and women, they, you know, are far from their homes. They're, they're there from anywhere from nine months, six, six months now. Some of them are, are as low as six months to nine months. But the majority at the time I was there were gone for, you know, 13 months to a year, you know, a, little, a year to 13 months. And they don't have contact with what's going on back home. They don't see the news of what's going on back home. They don't know how their families are doing. You know, the only contact is, is Facebook and Skype sometimes, which is good. I mean, that's a lot better than some of the, the older generation had where you, you disappeared into, in World War II, you just disappeared for months on end and nobody knew where you were, what you were doing. So there is a bonus to it, but the reality is it's very hard on them. And the, re, the, the problem that I see with our guys when they come home is people don't understand their mission. They don't know what they were there for because the media, uh, the, you know, mainstream media shows one particular side or, or another and the, the whole of their mission is not discussed. So they find themselves alone and almost, you know, for lack of better terminology, forgotten. And that, that of course seems to be the bigger fear because if you go over and you serve and you, and you give your, your last full measure for your country, that's something that's known that that might happen. And then people will remember you. Your name will get on walls. People will know your face. But when you come home from that war and you've survived it, it's very easy for people to forget. Yeah. It seems like, you know, the men and women that are there, they're, they're living life as like they're a raw nerve. You know, it's just, it's constantly being stimulated and irritated and, and, you know, it's really life in the, uh, on the edge where you're just so conscious of, of every moment. And then you come here to a more mundane life, you know, where people are, you know, complaining about the, the fact that the uh, radiator isn't working or, you know, some, some 
press about some celebrity. And it seems like so meaningless as compared to the experience that they've just come away from. And that, that makes that makes being able to communicate about what they what happened there so much difficult. Even when people sort of press them in terms of what it was like, they feel like, God, this life you're you're living here back in the States, you can't possibly understand what happens. And that's why so many of them, you know, don't say anything about what, what happened, even though it, it, to some extent it might, it might be a good thing, but they just don't think that the people that are asking the questions really would really understand. You know, when, as you said that last little section there, I got, I got chills and I actually got a, you know, a bit of a shake when you said that because the, the way you just articulated it was absolutely perfect. Very few people understand exactly what you just said. And the reality is, is you hear about our soldiers coming home and people see him at coffee shops sitting quietly in the back by themselves and reading and people say, oh, he's a loner because he's, you know, suffering from the traumas of war or all this. And the reality is, is, you know, it's, that's not the case in most cases. Most cases, it's just, they have, they have nothing in common with the people around them. You know, I had a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, I happened to be sitting at a coffee shop and was working on the Afghanistan stuff, and I was wearing a ball cap that said U.S. Forces Afghanistan. I'm very particular, of course. You know, a lot of people have given things to me or shown me, like, you know, oh, here's a, you know, an Afghan war vet thing. I'm like, I'm not a vet. You know, I never served, I, you know, but there was this one ball cap that I found that says U.S. Forces Afghanistan, and I get away with wearing that one. And she, uh, she looked at me and she said, all you military types, all you guys over there, you know, been to Afghanistan said you wear these ball caps and bumper stickers and all this just to say you're better than the rest of us. And I, st- I laughed and I turned to her and I said, no, that's not at all why they wear it. It's not at all why, you know, we have these things out there on bumpers and such like that, you know, T-shirts. What it is is it's a cry for other people around us who have, who have served or been there to come up and shake our hands because somebody will know immediately that they understand us. You know, we may sit in silence and have a cup of coffee with each other, but, you know, the idea is for those who have walked that field, we look for the people who have walked that field. We look for the people that have been to the same bases or been to the same countries or been through the same fights and struggles we have because we look for commonality. Just as much as, you know, a sports team, you know, you wear a sports team jersey because you want somebody else who's a fan of that sports team to, to reach out to you, you know, it's the same kind of thing with them. Just before I went to Afghanistan a while back, uh, you know, the first time, you know, before I was doing the processing, I sat with a friend of mine who was a former uh, enlisted man who turned officer after going through West Point. And I asked him what Afghanistan was like, and, and he turned to me and he said, you wouldn't understand. And about a week and a half into Afghanistan, I called him and I said, hey, I, I understand now. And what you meant was not that I wouldn't understand. It's that you didn't want me to understand. But now I understand it. And he, he laughed and he said, I'm sorry. You know, because we do understand some things and we have a perspective that is not common. So when, when you come home and, you, and as you said, you listen to somebody complain about something that to guys who have, you know, seen mortal combat, who have fought in mortal combat, who have, who have lost friends, you know, you come back and, and you go, you, <laughs> the, the ability to breathe today is something that some of my friends don't have. And the ability to see my family is something some of my friends don't have. And so you get a perspective on what's important and what, what's not. Yeah. Was it difficult for you, you know, when, when soldiers lost friends or they just come back from a firefight and they're just, they're just shaky from what had happened. Did you find it difficult to raise the camera to make a photograph or did you feel that even more impelled to document what you were seeing? You know, that's, that's a very hard question. Uh, because the men that I was with, they knew what I was there for. They knew what was going on. There's moments that were very hard for me to point a camera at, but I felt a duty to point that camera. And there are many images that will perhaps never be released or will only be released years from now. Um, that were some of those moments. Did I capture them? Yes. Um, were they as much for me personally as for them? I mean, most of these soldiers got copies of the images I took with them. Uh, uh, but there's, um, I don't believe there's the picture. I'm, I'm looking here through a copy real quick to see if, if it made it in, but there's, um, there's a picture that I have personally that means the world to me. And that's of a, of a guy by the name of Getchy who, uh, 
right after going through a situation, you know, and as things started to calm down, Getchy took a moment to sit and stare out into a field to, to gather his thoughts and to get, you know, uh, a balance. And I took a, took a photo of that and, you know, the, the picture looks so serene and calm, nobody would know what had just occurred. You know, the, when these guys go through what they go through, there's, there are moments of sheer terror. There are moments of, of fear. And then you find yourself on the other side of them and you have to take a moment to breathe. But I felt it my, I did feel it very much my duty to show the full spectrum of what our guys go through. And so those kind of things had to be photographed. But I'll tell you, there were certain times when I photographed things here where I was, I was on the verge of tears taking pictures of them because it hurt to take pictures of them because I hurt for the person there. When you look through a camera and you zoom in on somebody, you know, all everything else fades away. When you're taking a picture, I, you know, all the photographers that I've ever met understand this. When you zoom in on something or when you look at something, all the other things of life go away because you're looking through a very small lens, looking at a, at one subject and you get focused on what you're doing. And when you focus on some of the pain or the fear or the discomfort or the loneliness or just the emotions that some of these soldiers go through, you take those upon yourself and, and it, it hurts. Yeah. You know, you know, one of the f- first photographs that you had to, to make when you were there was uh, the photograph of the hero ramp. You know, that's, that's a, that's a hell of a baptism. You know, when you, when you first arrived there, tell us about, you know, what that is and what that experience was like and how it, how it kind of defined everything that uh, you would do subsequently. You know, this was a, a key example of being an, uh, <laughs> being a moronic outsider. You know, I got the phone call from uh, Travis Detmer, who was a, uh, one of the guys that was to oversee me. And he gave me a call and said, you know, we need you at this, at this hero ramp service. And, you know, to me, I had, I had never heard those words put together into a sentence, hero ramp service. So I'm like, all right, I, don't, I have no idea what this is, but, you know, I'm excited because the military guys called me and asked me to be there. Yay. And so I, you know, in an excited tone said, you know, I'll be glad to. Uh, what time is that? And he, he told me uh, the time and the location. And then he, he paused for a minute and he said, uh, you don't know what a hero ramp service is, do you? And I said, not a clue. And he goes, we're moving one of our fallen. And I had, I had interacted with, with Gold Star families, meaning uh, families of soldiers that were killed for years uh, as far back as, as 2005. So I knew the other side of this world. I knew what, what the family members were going to experience and go through when this was happened. So I was heartbroken over it. And, and I told him, I said, please accept my apologies. I didn't, I didn't know. And uh, he said, no, you're fine. Just make sure you show up. And so I showed up to... Uh, to photograph the transfer of this soldier. And, um, it was, it was, I, I did that on, on a couple occasions in Afghanistan. And I'll tell you, those were by far the, the worst days of, of my life. They were the worst days that I could have because when you're standing there, when, when, when you're photographing these guys doing their job, they're uncomfortable. Imagine how much more uncomfortable they are when you're photographing the movement of their fallen brother. And when you show up as the fat, dumb civilian with a camera that has no freaking business being in their country and you're photographing the worst days of their lives as they're moving their loved brother, it's, it's very awkward. I mean, imagine, you know, for, our, for the photographers that are, are, are out there, you know, imagine walking into a funeral and taking pictures of somebody you don't know, uh, you, you have no connections of. I mean, it's, it would be, it's very awkward. And to, to see this here, I mean, it was very hard to take these images, but I did feel that it was a, a duty of them. And, you know, it became very hard when we had to write the book. And I'll tell you, it's been, it's been a task and a half, but to, I've heard back from some of the soldiers who are in the images moving their loved brother that they fought with. And in some cases, you know, were there when the, when the incident happened, you know, to hear them come back and say, if you had to show it, you did a good job. You know, that's, that's what means the world to me on these. But the, the first trip there, the first thing I did in country was a hero ramp service. And the last thing I did before going home was a hero ramp service. And for that to be the parentheses on my trips there, it set a tone of the realities of, of war. I had never, 
I was never disillusioned to think that war didn't kill. Of course, I always knew that. But when you're when you're there and you're seeing these men move somebody, um, and it's there's no words for it other than you know uh, yeah there's there's really no words for it. You know, you dedicated a chapter to to the Afghani people, and what surprised you about uh, about them and and their country and their land that you had not anticipated or and and what did you really want people to understand when they took a look at these photographs of of these people you know as as an as an american civilian as somebody you know subjected to a particular viewpoint of the afghan people early on in the war i mean we were taught that these guys were out there to kill you and that you know they're all bad and they're all evil and all this and so when i first showed up in the country and the building I was in housed, uh, you know, right next to it uh, there at, at the at the Ford operating base Salerno. You know, my building had the rooms for us, but right next to me was the mosque. And and I was, you know, and, and when I say that, the mosque was down the way a little bit, but there was a room, there was a prayer room on our side of the base for for these for for the the Afghan workers who were helping us to go pray. And so the first knee jerk reaction I had was, wow, I mean. Every day that I go into the the quote office here, uh, there's Afghans working hard, trying to understand what our job was and trying to do the same kind of thing for their people. And then when we went into combat and we had Afghan soldiers, you know, with us, when it was a realization that although we were fighting Al Qaeda, Haqqani, the Taliban, you know, uh, there were a lot of Afghans that really wanted the best for their country. And as I went through my time there and as I met different Afghans, as I sat and talked with them, as I interacted with the people there, I found such a desire to make their country uh, stand, such a desire to make their country contribute on the world scale. When I watched the the children's curiosity as I mean every mission we went out on there were children everywhere they would they'd come follow you they'd walk around you know their their curiosity to to see what was going on their love of the people and it just it was worlds different from what I was being inundated with in the United States by people who just spoke very ill about the Afghan people. And so it's just like anything else. You know, if I told you that a person was a mean person, you'd go there thinking that person was mean. And, you know, you have to overcome your own preconceived notions. So I'll tell you, you know, there's not a day goes by that I don't think about somebody, one of those Afghan people that I was with that was was doing good for their country. Mm. I'm sure you get asked a lot about what it was like to be there and what were some of the challenges. But I, I want to know, what was the biggest challenge about coming back home and how did this putting together this book help you? You know, I didn't want to come home to be honest, to be honest. Uh, you know, I had my family here and, and such, and if it wasn't, you know, for a very loving and supporting wife, um, uh, I don't think I would have come home. Uh, I would have stayed there as long as, as, as they'd let me. And in the, the mission's not done there, and it hurt for me to leave those countrymen and see those people that I had served with, served beside. Careful, let me let me carefully clarify. You know, as I've said before, I, I never served in the combat, but to walk around with these men, you know, and and to see them doing what they're doing, it it uh, and to leave them there and to come home, um, it hurt, and. The second the opportunity to go back arised, I, I did. And if the opportunity was still there, I was talking just the other day with one of the guys who's in charge of, of people coming in, and I said, "Hey, is there any slots? Can I come?" And he said, "No, you know, because they're uh, they're working on shutting everything down." But you know, I would go back tomorrow, and I I hope that someday I get to go back. But coming home and writing this book, I had a I considered, in my opinion, I had a duty to show what was going on over there. Not just because of of my beliefs personally, but I believe that it there that people needed to see what life in Afghanistan really was like because they aren't getting shown that. And so I uh, 
I needed to do what we did, and it was a long and arduous task. I really wanted this book to be out a lot sooner than it was, but with the great help of uh, of Steve Hartov coming in, I knew that we had delayed a little bit, but the final product would be would be incredible. And so it's out a little bit later than I thought it was going to be, or I hoped to be. But um, I really want people to understand what what life over there is like for our guys, as well as for the people that live there. Uh, I think you've accomplished that. It's 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 a it's a great book. Thank you. Um, well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, that is a really good question. My personal, I have a personal affinity for Annie Leibovitz's work. And Annie's work, you know, most of us have seen something in you know, Vanity Fair or, or, you know, in some magazine somewhere that was done by Annie Leibovitz or seen her commercials. And most of her stuff that people look at have to do, has to do with the portraits she does of, of celebrities or of such. But I've recently picked up one of Annie's books that she did that involved, uh, Louisa May Alcott's, uh, work and, you know, her house. And it's kind of a, a great book that shows Annie's, work outside of the portrait photography. It's a different side of her photography. So what I would encourage is that people look into their own favorite photographer, but also look into other things. And and this book by Annie Leibovitz is called Pilgrimage, and it just shows some of her stuff outside of her normal uh, thing. So I would encourage trying to find, I mean, all of us as photographers we have our primary interest of what we photograph, but there's usually something else that we photograph that's more personal. And to see that with, with Annie would be, would, was something that I've been, been truly fascinated with. And then an up and coming that I've seen that I've really liked is a guy by the name of Steve Bernard. And he's out of, um, he's out of California, out of Los Angeles. And he's done some stuff recently, uh, abroad and in, in, in other uh, in other countries, but then also he's doing some some stuff there. So he's an up and coming artist that I, I think uh, we'll be hearing a little bit more about as as time progresses. Well, thanks for that. And where can people go to find out more about you and and, and your work? Well, I have two websites that are that are interested. Obviously, the Afghanistan uh, one. The best way to get that is just afghanistanbook.com. That's just afghanistanbook.com. We'll get you to that. And then the my personal work is on robertlcunningham.com. And uh, I'm trying my hardest to keep that one up to date as well. So robertlcunningham.com will have some of my work. And then afghanistanbook.com has the more driven towards the Afghanistan work. Great. Well, Robert, thank you so much for your time and for all your efforts with this project. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. You can show your continued support for the work we do here at TCF by making donations of any amount using PayPal. By clicking on the links in the show notes or on the website, your contributions help us to improve the show. Each episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you with the contributions of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music is available via incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.